Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. I had to go about it, write it out and find it myself. And there's some stories I can tell you. This is the final word. Story time. 100. The big one. Oh, centuries are just arbitrary figures. Oh, if we just didn't work in base 10, things would be different. Nonetheless, we, we work in cricket and the 100 matters. Not the 100, the tournament. That probably doesn't matter very much, but the century, the 100, the round figure uh, in, in all kinds of different ways when it comes up. And it is astonishing, Adam Collins. I'm Jeff Lemon. If you're wondering, it's astonishing to think that this will be the 100th history show that we have made on this pod feed. Yeah, and it's worth remembering how this came to pass as well, I think, Jeff, in, in acknowledging uh, that this wouldn't have happened if, if not for the influx of people who joined the Patreon page when mm. the pandemic hit and people went into lockdown and we weren't sort of putting our hand out saying, give us money. It was more saying, if you were inclined to support the final word on mm-hmm. Patreon, if it was in the back of your mind and you were going to do it at some stage, this would be particularly useful because all the cricket's finished and thus we have no other work. Yes. And that's kind of uh, <laughs> uh, turned into this history program and it is a lot of work. It is without a doubt the, the thing we work on most during a given week for the final word, I suppose, with mm-hmm. the exception of the big interviews, but it's always worthwhile. The number of times that these stories uh, and these players come up in our commentary or our other conversations or our journalism, it's it's paid off in multiple ways. So mm. it's a yeah, privilege to be able to do it in this way with people who clearly have had an interest in us to start with. In, in many ways, I feel like I have been given a scholarship to Cricket University um, <laughs> in doing this show. Like I've had to do the work, you know, it, yeah. it, it's, it's not without the hours that you do. But at the end of it, after a couple of years of it, because this is, you know, 100 means we've done two years worth of this program, sure. basically, even though... I think we've done I think we've done more than two years, but because we've occasionally had to skip over weeks. Yep. We, I think we probably started this formally in about May of 2020, mm-hmm. having flirted with it for a little while. Yep. Remember the first weekly, weekend shows, rather, we did were on the off weeks of calling the shots. Yeah, So we'd have right. calling the shots, yep. and on the off weeks, we're like, well, we better keep the feed ticking over. Sure. So we'll do three nerd pledge numbers and we'll do any other issues we didn't get to on the yep. weekly show. Or we'd, re, we'd roll out an interview that an we interview. had. You That's know, right. We, we had some older interviews and we had some extras from Calling the Shots and all the rest of it and we were like, well, this stuff's interesting. People will want to hear it. We'll put it on the feed and we'll do like three numbers and that became four numbers and that became five numbers and then it became we don't have time to do anything else on the weekend because we have to do like 10 or 12 numbers. It, it was Jay Mueller, our executive producer, who first said, why don't you just do it, go all in, do mm-hmm. this properly. And we're like, yeah, that's a pretty good idea. Yeah. At first I was like, little did we know we'd be solving cryptic crossword clues and <laughs> and, uh, and, um, and thumping the computer. But yeah. no, it, it was Jay who first said, you should just do this properly. And I think yeah. we both said, surely there won't be enough interest in, that's what I said. in numbers and cricket history. I was like, surely it's too niche. Yeah. And and there won't be like, I'm like people listen to it because it's a bit on the other show, but they're not going to just listen to that. I was wrong. People do, there are a lot of people who just listen to that. They're like, you know, yeah. whatever, all your stuff, all your interviews and your politics about the game and whatever, yeah, 
But when you start telling me about some cricket badger shit about 1892... When you tell me about Douglas Carr's test match. <laughs> yeah, 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 exactly. When, it's, when, you know, when, when, when Fluey de Toit comes into the conversation... Toit like a toy guy. That is when I switch on. And so, you know, hello to all of you storytime only devotees. Uh, bless you. Bless anyone who listens to anything in the feed. You might be into the dailies and not the weeklies. You might be weeklies and not dailies. You might be all three. And being an all-format player in the final word feed is increasingly an impost on your time. You know, it is, it is hard to manage the three formats. You know, we have to make them, but I salute the people who listen to them. Yeah, absolutely. Right. We should probably crack on. Yep. We've got a number of new entries. Well, I say new entries, Jeff. A, a number of people who've probably mostly been in the list before. Only mm-hmm. a couple of new numbers necessarily. And then we're not doing revisits. They'll, mm-hmm. they'll come along next week in story time 101 and so it goes. Uh-huh. But we better do as we always do, Jeff, and, and play a little game called... Nerd Pledge! Proper 100 version. Nerd Pledge. It is the game that we play with the people on the internet. The reverse quiz here is how it works. People out there, bless them. Bless their kind hearts. They fund this show. They make it happen. And they do it by sending in contributions. And those contributions are not normal denominations that you might find on a coin or a note. They are very specific amounts of whatever currency it is because that number relates to cricket in some way. And we have to work out what the number means. Thank you, Glenn, who was just uh, recognised. <laughs> so we're, we're doing this live in front of an audience. We, we neglected to mention off the top, we've got a, a live Zoom audience of uh, final nerds listening into the show and sending us messages as we go. So first cab off the rank this week is the person you mentioned before, uh, an enthusiastic American supporter of the show who sends money in to go behind the bar when the final word 11 plays in England. Lara Killick with $8.29 in USD, 829 and an open slate for you, Adam. Thank you, Jeff. And uh, I, I can confirm, I think I did it last week, but I'll, I'll confirm again, the 16th of September, final word, mm-hmm. Oval Dream Boys. Uh, we've got 16 players for our 11 now, which is a good problem to have. Mm-hmm. Um, I'll leave that up to Dan and to Declan to work out who's playing. But thanks to Mark Henderson, we are definitely playing at the Griffin Sports Club, which mm-hmm. is pretty cool. So, Lara, that's where you'll be sending your money behind the bar this year if you see fit to do so. 829 was your number, uh, your re-up. I'll start by saying it's been taken twice in Test Cricket, which I was a little bit surprised by. 8 for 29, like, I thought, you know, maybe there might have been one. There have been it's two. A lot. It's a lot for a little. It's a lot, a lot of wickets for, for a little run. Yeah, yeah. Mm. So, the, one of those was Colin Croft against Pakistan at Port of Spain in, in 1977. Now, get this. This tickled me. Mm-hmm. So he's taken eight for 29 and the Windies have won by six wickets. Mm-hmm. And he wasn't named player of the match. Ooh. Indeed, it wasn't even a West Indian named player of the match. <laughs> and Wasim Raja uh, made 64 and 85 and took one for 13 in a losing cause. <laughs> he got the bottle of plonk rather than Colin Croft. <laughs> so uh, I thought that's a nice quirky one to begin on. Um, naturally, SF Barnes is the mm. other man to have taken eight for 29. That was against South Africa, of course, who he used to dominate mm. in the triangular series of 1912. Oh, the cranky old bastard of the north, Sydney Barnes. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Staffordshire great. I, I saw the uh, minor counties, um, mm-hmm. I think they call them national counties now, we're playing against mm-hmm. the uh, the 18 uh, senior counties, that's mm-hmm. probably the wrong word, first class counties yesterday uh, in their sort of one-off list day game. Uh, so they, they went and visited uh, their nearest minor county and did their thing and mm-hmm. I suppose it was very different when SF Barnes was electing to play in the minor counties as opposed to uh, the top flight stuff, stories that we've told in the past. Anyway, against South Africa at the Oval in 1912, they routed the visitors for 95 and 93, as was the way at the time, as mm-hmm. was the custom at the time. Mm-hmm. Um, the 
style at the time. Onions the on their belts the all around. Staffordshire, the, the, the thing I like most about it is the terriers. <laughs> Love a Staffordshire terrier. They, they have, they have the, their, their heads are like lizard heads, you know, these sort of diamond-shaped. They're always so happy. I don't know. What's your favourite dog? I don't know. We're, we're going to talk about butterfly bombs later, so, you know, without giving too much away. So. I don't know what that is. But... <laughs> well, yes, you do. You will you okay. believe me when I tell you. you know, right. you know I hope it's about. a bomb that blows up and butterflies come out, like thousands of butterflies at a really nice wedding. Not quite as nice as that, okay. believe me. This right. is a, sort of a 1943 thing that we'll get oh. to in a little bit later on. Ooh. So, uh, SF Barnes, uh, 8 for 29. Um, he took 5 for 28 in the other innings. Sure, he always did that. Yeah. But instead, I thought we would go back to the very hot summer of 1976 that all the gammon are very excited about at the moment moment where the most ever runs were scored in a four test series of course it was Sir Vivian Richards who made 829 against the English it's the make them grovel series just wanted to say for the record that Tony Gregg always felt guilt around having said that uh, he was that it was early in the season it was before the Windies had arrived Mm -hmm. and he was pissed off at the journal who was probing him at a County ground, it must have been at Hove, I suppose. Right. And he sort of reflexively said it, and like as soon as the words came out of his mouth, he regretted it and repented and apologised a number of times in the years that followed. Anyway, for the record, so that Test series begins at Trent Bridge, and Viv makes his two three two. It's actually a draw, surprisingly. In my mind, I thought they they beaten the Windies five nil. Sorry, mm-hmm. the Windies had beaten England five nil in seventy six, but of course that was that, that came later in in the eighties. But in seventy six, yep. they start with a draw. Viv had never made a double. Th- Ton before it was mm-hmm. his um, fifth Test century of the year and his mm-hmm. sixth all up, mm-hmm. but his first double. He was unavailable for Lords, which is why he played uh, four instead of the five. He was crook. Don't know mm-hmm. why. Doesn't really mention it in the Wisden Almanac what he was crook really? with. Just says he wasn't fit to play. Uh, maybe, uh, maybe a bit of Stoddart material. Yeah, Wally Hammond style, possibly. <laughs> um, <laughs> That's a song I don't want to hear. Uh, the uh, Mike Selby uh, gets him. Uh, at the start of the, the third test match at Old Trafford. We've got uh, mm. Simon Trafford on the line at the moment. Yes, yeah, so Selby on test debut famously takes three wickets in, in, in a furious burst to begin his international career. But the 211 that the uh, West Indies made ended up being comfortably enough to go 1-0 up in the series after England were all out for 71. The first time around, Mikey Holding uh, took... Five for 17. He mm. comes up later as well. Then in the second dig, Viv makes one three five, and, and they do it easily with Andy Roberts taking a six for. Leads for the fourth test match. He, he missed out comparatively, making 66 mm-hmm. and 38. But it was still another win for the Windies. They go up 2-0, uh, victorious by 55 runs. The Wisden Trophy is secure. Then to the Oval, the famous 2-9-1. In the South London heat, they make 687 for eight. Uh, Viv, uh, he beats his highest score from earlier in the series, 291 from 386 deliveries. Now, that was his final innings of 1976. As we know, they win that test match. Michael Holding takes 14 wickets. Uh, it's a huge victory. They take the series 3-0. But for Richards, his 700 in the year, overtaking Sobers, mm-hmm. he reached 1,710 runs in the calendar year, a new record, averaging 90 in 19 innings. That record stood until 2006 when Muhammad Yusuf broke it by 78 runs in the same number of innings, so 19 hits, nine centuries, averaging 99. So those records all went mm-hmm. um, thanks to Muhammad Yusuf few decades on. I thought it was worth putting it into context, though. Joe Root, for all of his brilliance in 2021, he still fell two runs short of Viv in 76, and he had 10 more innings. He batted 29 times last year, Joe Root. Mm -hmm. But in the series, it remains a record, 8-29 in four test matches. Steve Smith came closest with 7-7-4 in the 2019 Ashes, where he played four of the five, but I doubt anyone will get 
anywhere near that again. So, Lara, maybe you can tell us here and now. Are we right? Let us know. 829 Viv Richards, 1976. Well, we're getting uh, suggestions in the text feed as well. Uh, Matt May says MS Dhoni took 829 international dismissals. Um, this and is good. And James Ralston says Sean Pollock, 829 international wickets. So there's a couple of Well, others. where's Lara? I mean, Lara in the comments can presumably just tell us now yeah, what's we can, going on. Yeah, we can work this out live. We can fact-check this. Um, oh, man, this is disappointing. Lara's already telling us we're wrong mid-show. Normally we get like a couple of days of thinking we might have got yeah, it right. Yeah, yeah. Okay, but I'm, I'm going to cruise on to the next one because this is a perfect moment of confluence in terms of numbers coming together because this was crisp and crunch, repeat offender, repeat pledger, with $8.81 in AUD. Uh Please read them the clue. Eh? Okay, uh, Crispin. Hello, Crispy. One, you can thank Norky for this one. Two, this relates to two players from the same country. One great and one who should be great. Three, there are several stories here. And for one of these players, many have been told. The other, I was almost unaware, even though he played during my lifetime. 881. Well, 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 881 is our number, right? Right? Okay. And you talked about Joe Root making a lot of runs in a certain year and you do the Joe Root versus everybody else thing where in the year of 2021 he scored 1708 runs. Rory Burns is next with 530. Right, yeah. Extras 431. The difference between Root and Burns was 1,178 <laughs> runs. And that was something that Daniel Norcross was talking about a lot. So if we have Norcross to thank, maybe it's a similar figure. And maybe it goes back to 1976. <laughs> and maybe it goes back to Viv Richards. Oh, does because it? Because in 1976, he makes 1,706 runs, as you said. The next best for West Indies was Roy Fredericks with 829. The gap between them was 881 runs. Couldn't make it up. Which is Chris. Couldn't make it up. Even if, even if you wanted to make no. it up, you didn't know I was putting that up. You, you answered yours before yep. I answered mine. You couldn't no. have known. I didn't know what your, your answer was, um, and these two numbers were next to each other on the list. So 829 is the gap between Viv and Fredericks, right? And Crispy said that he wants to hear about the player that he heard about less, which would be Roy Fredericks, because we hear about Viv Richards all the time, as we have just done, right? So, 1976. Uh, starts badly. They lose the last three tests in a six-match series against Australia and end up losing 5-1. Lily and Thompson take 56 wickets between them in the test series. Um, then West Indies have a loss and a draw among four tests when India come to visit them. And then they go to England and have the 3-0 win across five. So, yes, Viv with seven tonnes, all the rest of it. Roy Fredericks only made two tonnes in that year. Roy Fredericks made 829 runs that year, as has been pointed out here by Vivek Arcot. That could be Lara's before. Oh. 829. Oh. Oh. The synergy, the symmetry. Oh, my God. This is like the most synergistic number. Um, <laughs> but... So L L Lara wants something to do with Michael Jackson, I think. Um, okay, all right. This is that's going to get too weird to try to solve live. We we probably shouldn't talk about Michael Jackson on this show without <laughs> thinking about it first. That's all I'm going to say. So, in that England Test series, that's when Roy Fredericks makes the two tons that he makes that year. He makes five other fifties in the year, but that's towards the end of his Test career. It's his second last year of Test cricket because he starts playing in 1968. He's from Guyana. He's short, he's like five foot six, he's left-handed, opening bat, loves to take on the bowling, loves cross-bat shots, pull shots, hook shots, lay into the fast bowlers. And so it's for that reason that he is uh, supposedly Brian Lara's idol growing up as a left-hander who lays into everything whenever possible. He goes to play county cricket in 1971. He makes a ton on debut for Glamorgan. 
he sets the club record partnership of 330 batting with Alan Jones. Not that Alan Jones. The good Alan Jones, not the bad Alan Jones. They're like the Paul Kellys. You know, there's a, there's a, there's a, there must be an Alan Jones ranking because there'd be thousands of them. He debuts in Test Cricket in 1968 at the MCG, makes 76 and 47 on debut, doing pretty well, consistently in the team after that, um, and eventually settles into this opening partnership with Gordon Greenwich, which paves the way for Gordon Greenwich and Desmond Haynes to be the, the dominating opening partnership that they will become later. Plays in all of the early one-day international matches. Uh, so in the World Cup final against Australia, he hooks... Dennis Lilly into the crowd first ball and steps on his stumps while doing so and he's out hit wicket. And then in 1976, so it's the the year in question, just before that happens, so just in the December of 1975, he plays a match against Australia at the Wacker and he has learned nothing from this lesson because he hooks Lilly for six second ball this time and this time doesn't step on his stumps and goes on to make 100 from 71 balls. This is his most famous innings. He ends up on 169. It's the second fastest test 100 at the time after Jack Gregory. Yeah, and I think it was. I think it remained the West Indies record until Shibnaran Chanderpaul against Australia yeah. in 2003. Oh, when they were all it? out, I mean, they were all out in inside two sessions mm. to start the series and Chanderpaul made 100. I think it was 69 balls. Yeah. Nice. Nice, yeah. Um, he, he just had a day when he decided to do what he wanted. So uh, Ashley Mallett, the test spinner, wrote about that innings. He said, I was fielding in the gully and nothing came anywhere near me, yet Fredo was cutting fiercely, the ball soaring over my head and to my left around point. So, yeah, it goes on to get two more of his eight career test hundreds in that England series, backing up Viv uh, after the the grovelling thing. Goes on to play World Series cricket. He also gets into politics later. So at one point, uh, the government of Forbes Burnham is running Guyana. They're a kind of semi-communist authoritarian state regime. And Roy Fredericks becomes the junior minister for youth and sports, which I'm sure was a very significant portfolio. It's a great gig. <laughs> it's a great gig. When I first started in politics, I'm like, what a great gig it would be to be the sports minister one day. Now, I, I, perhaps if you went into politics, you probably wouldn't want to necessarily just have that portfolio, mm. but um, not a bad place to start for him. So, uh, well, I don't think he really went on after that, but he did end up being a selector for Guyana and had a, a rich and varied life until he died in the year 2000. Where we went up in the year 2000. Not if you were Roy Fredericks, but uh, that was how it came to an end for the left-handed dasher. I wondered when you were going through that, is Roy Fredericks on the front cover of The Hapless Hookers, the Frank Tyson book about the 75-76 tour that was was kind of a recap of it. It's a Mm. famous front cover. It's actually Clive Lloyd, but in my head I remembered it as The Happy Hookers. So, Jeff, I'm (laughs) going to show you the Google screen that I've brought up on Google Images of The the Happy Hookers. It's a a book by Zaria Hollander, The Happy Hooker, Uh and you can sort of draw your own conclusions there. Uh, there are a number of different front covers if, you, uh, oh. if you're wondering and they all have a, have a similar theme. So, okay. no, it wasn't um, Zaveria Hollander's book. It was uh, Frank Tyson's mm. of a slightly different name. And I thought I'd, I'd end on a little note from Ashley Mallett who, who said that um, after his playing career, he said, any time you ran into Roy Fredericks, he said, his face lit up like a Christmas tree, like his batting that day at the Wacker, the day all the stars in the firmament got together with a dynamo to give the world of cricket an unmatched heavenly delight, which is pretty nice from someone who got belted around that day and, and didn't have a lot of fun while he was playing. Yeah, always someone with a, with a wonderful turn of phrase, Ashley Mallett, the great, late great uh, Ashley Mallett. Okay, well, uh, that's two down, Jeff. Uh, next up, we have Tanya Wintringham with 640 GBP. Now, if I recall correctly, Jeff, one of Tanya's numbers mm-hmm. at some point during the pandemic 
did it not prompt you to go back and look at the page in Wisdom or something like that? And you spent a number of months, uh, a number of weeks going back and forth. I've got some vague recollection that Tanya sent you something that really got you digging. There was, oh, there was one where Norcross ended up with a page number. Oh, maybe I'm conflating that with something else. The Ed Giddens thing. Yeah, yeah, the Ed Giddens Christmas tree Mm. uh, clue, um, or that wasn't, that should have been, and we wish yeah, had it been correct. But I think I, I think okay. I have done a fair bit of digging. But Tanya's got a clue for you, uh, okay? Which says the so this was a change in currency because it went to pounds. She said that's tangential, not particularly relevant. More done to keep the pledge at around the same value. The only clue is that the answer is found in some of the traditional final word areas, of which there are many. Some, some people who are listening to the show are threatening to build a wiki, like a, a, a final word, like everything that we've talked oh, really? about and what it, like how our in-jokes work and what the references mean and all the rest of it so that people could log on and understand what a dusty old bastard is and right. what, a, what a thanks for coming is. And We, we do it. have a Wikipedia author amongst our ranks, so okay. um, maybe I can well, this is, So not on Wikipedia itself, but like a wiki being the, the information gathering point of oh, a I certain see. thing. So like you could, you know, if you're a... Dungeons and Dragons person, you could go onto a Dungeons and Dragons wiki and find all of the information, or about a TV show, TV series, or whatever. Yep. So, so that's the uh, that's that's apparently it's being proposed anyway. All right, Tanya. So uh, look, final word, favourite topics. Um, of course, they are, they are weird and varied, including Timmy Cotter, who um, who in 1904 played for. Uh, England against Australia, mm-hmm. played for Australia against England even at the MCG and took six for 40. Some players did both. Some players did at both. The time. Yeah, yes. <laughs> Who do you feel like turning out for this week? <laughs> Billy Midwinter. Well, well funny, funny, funny you say that because that's where we're going to get to in this answer as it happens. Dizzy took Billy Murdoch. Dizzy took six teams. for 40 against, turncoat. Uh, against the Windies at Melbourne in 2000. The spell we talked about because we were both there. Yep probably different parts of the ground. I was sitting uh, on the third level of the Great Southern Stand right where the television cameras mm-hmm. are. I, I, I worked out as a young lad that is the best seat in the house at the G and, and would try and get up there late in a test match when they didn't sell tickets. And that six for, for um, Dizzy was uh, late on evening four and early on day five when they hadn't mm-hmm. pre-sold the tickets. So I remember that very fondly. It was Dougie Bracewell's figures at Hobart to bowl out Australia in 2011. So yep. I think, again, another final word favourite. We've had Jason Gillespie been on the show. Doug Bracewell, 6 for 40, something we mm-hmm. have discussed a number of times. And indeed, uh, Jimmy, who... Missed again, test matches because he dropped a beer in the shower and stepped on the broken glass. Also good, also also worthwhile. And Jimmy, who turned 40 on the weekend, another final word fave, took those figures against Sri Lanka at Gaul at the start of 2021 to begin the series there. So there are a few options to start with. I was thinking kind of other... Final word favourites, final word areas, man cads, dusty old bastards. Mm-hmm. On that basis, even though it's not going to quite work, DC, play the music. So, um, I say it doesn't quite fit the criteria of a dusty old bastard, but I don't have a dusty old bastard this week. And I thought being show number 100, I had to shoehorn something in. Sure. Fair enough. Yep. And you have been an advocate for liberalising the way we interpret this in recent weeks, mm-hmm. that we shouldn't be so strict about the interwar period and the bit just after the war. We need to, mm-hmm. you know, fatten it out. Yeah. And, and to that I, end... And for me, anyone pre-1960 at this point yeah, is, is well, dusty. Yeah, my, well, my guy's not dusty. Mine's just quirky. Okay. Uh, it's Darren Pattinson, who uh, wore cap 640 for England. Future at, dusty old bastard. So I thought that's got exactly. to be a category in its own yep. right because there are certainly players where you can say in say fifty or sixty years they will be 
they're just well, it's going to be a hell of a story, right? They're well, an well, FDOB. The 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 Darren Pattinson tale is is a remarkable one, and I thought because of Pato, the family link, that the part of Melbourne where he grew up in and I grew up in as well, it's near enough to a final word favourite area that mm. we can do this now. Life of him began in Grimsby, which is often discussed because of those butterfly bombs that I mentioned before oh. in 1943. So that's where the Nazis okay. dropped the bombs on Grimsby because it was a strategic port. Uh-huh. Uh, well, it was close to the North Sea, I think that's why, mm-hmm. and they had them set to go off like a butterfly, as it were, when they were approached by people going back out to recover and repair. Okay. It was like a disgusting like, part of the civilian warfare. Like Claymore mines kind of it would, Yeah, the idea was is that it wouldn't necessarily, they wouldn't blow up at the time, they'd blow up weeks or months later. So the collateral damage from oh, the attack was pretty like, substantial. Like sowing mines from the air. Yeah, not nice. Okay. So I always think of Grimsby and my mate Nathan Smith, I just thought yeah. I'd drop this in, he probably listens to the show. Yep. This is this guy we met at the footy in 2013 on a one-year backpacking trip from Grimsby. Mm-hmm. Lovely fella. It was uh, friends of a friend, as it were. And uh, he, he ended up spending all season with us and, and standing with us at the mm. grand final in 2013 when Hawthorne beat Fremantle. And I admired his passion so much that I gave him one of my Hawthorne jumpers. So I hope he's wearing it somewhere, <laughs> um, watching us on the telly from I just, time to time. I just think we could turn butterfly bombs into something good because it could be like a delicious piece of confectionery. Is it like <laughs> something from a, a patisserie, you know, something with lots of, of shoe pastry and like cream in the middle that sort of bursts out as you bite into yeah. it? Or, you know, like, like a I jam said, donut. Yeah. At the right yeah. part of the hole. Get Dane Hanstead, he works at a bakery. Yes. Get, get onto the butterfly bomb and make it, reclaim that phrase, make it something delicious. Yeah. Or it's literally like thousands of butterflies coming, you know, like at, at some awful gender reveal or something. Like <laughs> thousands of blue butterflies <laughs> emerge from a big, like, ceremonial we, we, cake. We, or we something. did joke about hamming that up with the baby that we're going to have in January. Because, yeah. you know, that's not exactly Rachel's style, nor is it mine. No. We're going to wait until the day to find out. But we said maybe we take the piss and do one of those gender reveals, you know, sort of hitting the, mm. uh, hitting the sort of, I don't know, what do you hit? What's the, what's the thing? The pinata. The pinata, yeah. I'd like to get, you know, see like the, the, the sky riding plane come over and just ride out. Our baby is free to make its own decisions, <laughs> you know, <laughs> something like that. Uh, where are we? Uh, also, George Norman's our second baker oh, yeah. in the program, True. by the way. We've got two uh, amongst our, our final word crew. Where are we? Grimsby. Okay. Uh, Darren Pattinson from there to Doveton, around the corner from where I grew up, to mm-hmm. Dandenong, mm-hmm. Uh, where he played district cricket. And through his 20s, that's what he did. You know, he played for Dandenong in the summer, played for Doveton in the winter, in the footy, in the uh, MPNFL. And he was just, you know, I, I mean, a very good local sportsman, but a local sportsman. That's what, This is what he did. Mm-hmm. And then in 2007, January of 07, there are a spate of injuries in the Victorian team. Gets his opportunity and it's the beginning of this really crazy yarn at age 28. He only played a couple of games for Victoria in 07, 08. See, this is the bit I, I, I misremembered, if you mm-hmm. like. I, I thought that he'd... Uh, he bowled the house down in 0708, which was the, the trigger to get him to Nottinghamshire mm-hmm. in 2008, where the big twist comes. But it turns out he really wasn't called upon too often. It's because he had the British passport. So he was playing a little bit for Victoria, but not s- realised that, mm. well, he's an underutilised asset. If he's near enough to that great Victorian team, he's going to go okay. They took advantage of his passport, got mm. him out there to play on a two-year deal in 2008, four knots, and starts the season with five for 22 on debut against Kent. Then six for 30 against Lancashire at Trent Bridge. By July, he's called into the 30-man Champions Trophy squad. His form is brilliant, 29 wickets at 20. So the criticism, which I'll come to in a moment, 
was there, but it's not as though he wasn't one of the best performing bowlers in the country mm. at that particular time. So he was the Matthew Potts of his day. I guess he was to an yeah. extent. He was. I, I you know, Potts a few years younger than than Pattinson was at the time, but he was eligible. So when it was, you know, they look around and they go, okay, well, this is the person who's bowling. Who's bowling well? And yeah, we need someone. Could be a comparative, you know, an advantage that they've got a guy who's grown up in Australian conditions against South Africa. So when Jimmy has a little niggle, they bring him up as injury cover. In the end, Anderson plays. Ryan Sidebottom misses with a back niggle at the last minute. He's in the team. And the response to this news is intense. So Christopher Martin Jenkins describes it as the most out-of-the-hat selection for 99 years since Douglas Carr. And we mm. told that story about the 1909 Ashes in the past where Archie McLaren picks Carr, who'd only played a handful of first-class games, only mm-hmm. taught himself how to bowl wrist spin a few months earlier and then was playing in the decisive test match of the 1909 Ashes and never played again. Then, uh, yeah, we had Ian Botham out there saying the selectors should be embarrassed, the kind of stuff you'd expect from Ian Botham and, mm-hmm. and others like that. Here's another. There's a lot about things that should embarrass you, yeah, to be fair. Yeah. yeah. There's another um, quirky bit here, too, which I, I just didn't know about. So the choice was to go with Pattinson or to call up Matthew Hoggard at the last mm-hmm. minute, who. If you watch Storytime or listen to Storytime 99, you'd know that he was on the wane by then. His career was pretty much over. Mm-hmm. He wasn't in the first choice team. But there was a real big, well, just call Hoggy up. You want a spare bowler. You've got a mm-hmm. guy with 230-odd test wickets. Get him in the mixer. However, as Michael Vaughan later explained, the captain, they couldn't pick Hoggard because it was his benefit year at Yorkshire. They were building up to a big game on the Thursday, which was starting as part of the benefit. The test match was starting on Thursday. They had a huge dinner on the Tuesday night to celebrate Hoggard. And to use Vaughan's words, Hoggard got absolutely trollied at the function so they couldn't pick him for a test match two days later. He wasn't eligible because he got too pissed on the Tuesday night. Uh, anyway, we, we get to the test. Pattinson's playing. He gets an early wicket. Hashim Amla, leg before wicket. Not a bad first test wicket. Ends up with two for 95 from 30. In the context of a big South African first innings, he... He did okay on taboo. Mm-hmm. He put on 61 with Stuart Broad, a young Stuart Broad, uh, Pattinson getting 13 of those to avoid the follow-on. In the end, South Africa uh, won by 10 wickets and they hit the winning runs off Pattinson. And by the next season, he was in and out of the team. Effectively, his brother replaced him in the bowling group. But he did go back to Knotts in 2010 when they won the ch- county championship. He took 31 wickets that season, 17 more in the T20 competition. Uh, so it, it must be remembered that Yes, the test match was quirky, but he was a proper cricketer mm-hmm. uh, and, and shouldn't be the sort of a punchline. When James made his test debut in December 2011, it was the first time in a century where different brothers represented two test nations, he, hmm. England and James, Australia. Uh, he finished up in 2011 himself. He took 337 professional wickets, two of those as test player 640. And um, yeah, I spoke to James Pattinson about this a few years ago when he was playing for Australia and he's still pissed off about it. He's pissed off about the way that his brother gets spoken about in England and it hmm. still remains a, a point of frustration for him that he's so proud of his older brother for creating that opportunity for himself. And Darren, in retirement, remains a... A greyhound trainer, and he's always got a wonderful story to tell about the very strange summer of 2008. Very good. The tale of Darren Pattinson. Uh, Right, Frankie is up next. Helen Maynard Casely on the cover of her book, but, you know, Frankie to her friends. (laughs) Uh, The number is $6.49 AUD. Right, clue here from Helen. Hello. One of the first Australian test players. I'd like to hear if anyone knows how she came by her nickname. Right. Now, this, Adam, may be my favourite nerd pledge that I've done. 
And this is okay. this is long. All right, bear with me. But this you've got to strap in for this one because six forty nine. So I I knew who this was immediately because I have talked about Peggy Antonio on the show before. Yep. Right. Played in Australia's first Test match in nineteen thirty four. A league spinner uh, of prolific ability, and she took six for forty nine in a Test match. And I I sort of I did the basic story. I think it was maybe a year ago. Story time fifty odd. But I hadn't really dug into it. And so coming around to the same topic for a second time, I went deep. I got into the newspaper archives. I figured out everything that was going on. And, and so, so so here we go. What I'd said before was we knew that her father was a, a Chilean dock worker who'd emigrated to Australia, met her mother. Peggy was born in 1917. Uh, her dad died when she was just over a year old. So she's raised by a single mother with some help from her uncle who gets her into cricket Plays with the local boys. She starts working at a shoe factory that has a women's cricket team. Now, I don't know how this happened or, or why this happened, but they did. And so she kept bowling. And she used to bowl off spin. Then she gets taught to bowl the leg break. Then she adds the googly, which is pretty new at the time. It's, you know, it's, it's pretty contemporary. Um, and she works out how to bowl a top spinner. And she bowls mostly leg breaks at this point, but occasionally slips in an off break as well. And she's very hard to pick. And she's prolific, even though she's a teenager. So... These were the things I talked about. She played six tests for Australia, two at England in 37. But I was like, okay, but how does, so how does this all come about? Like, what, what's her family story? So I enlisted the help of my dad. My father, Andrew Lemon, is a very uh, accomplished historian. And I was like, can you find me a birth certificate for Peggy Antonio? Because I want to know, like, what... I couldn't even find her parents' names. So... He is the kind of person who can find you a birth certificate for Peggy Antonio, (laughs) which which he duly did. So, her father is Francis Antonio. Her mother is Belle Myra Lubke. And when her dad dies, he's 55 years old. So, I was sort of envisaging a young father, you know, in in some sort of untimely fashion, but he, he wasn't. They'd been married for 25 years at this point. Four older siblings. The youngest of those is 15 years older than her. The oldest is 24 years older than her. And, I mean, this is tangential and maybe scurrilous, but it did, it did raise a question for me, which is like, hmm, okay, how likely is it, let's say her dad's 55, say her mother's younger, even if she starts having the first kids in her teens, she's having the later one in her early to mid-40s, right? Might it have been that one of those situations one where... One of those situations, yeah. which, which, was, which was common at the time, yeah. where because Peggy did have a sister who was 19 years old when she was yeah. born, and often at... That in that sort of era, if you had a kind of accidental pregnancy somewhere, you'd just quietly have the kid and then the mother would f- feed that kid into the rotation of children that she'd produced and, yep. you know, that would be easier socially. Now, I have no idea if that's complete speculation. I don't know if that's true. But it just came to mind because normally, like, normally you're not still cranking out kids you know, in your mid-40s or closer to 50, unless you're one of those one of those families where they have 19 children and just sort of do one a year and just, you know, the, the machinery is so well-oiled mm. that it just keeps flying out. But you don't normally have a 15-year a gap. They might have done, maybe. Maybe they just had a, a good night, you know, after a, a night on the town or something, 15 years after they last it had. It could have. That, that, that happened to my mum. My mum's 11 years later when my yeah. grandparents, I think my grandmother was 39 and my grandfather was 46. Mm-hmm. And that was the, the product of a dirty weekend in London, <laughs> which I told her later in life. <laughs> So, right. If not so, for that, I wouldn't be here. So, so when the English tour for the first time in 1934, she's, what is she, 17, I think, at the time, she gets asked to play for Victoria against the touring English. She takes 10 wickets in the match 
and she top scores with 43. She's described in the newspaper as a short, sturdy Italian girl. She's Chilean, but, you know, whatever. <laughs> Whatevs at the time. They're like, yeah, yeah, close enough. So she gets picked in the test team and she takes Australia's first test wicket ever when she dismisses Betty Snowball, who's... Ah, Daniel's well, favourite. Always one of my favourite names. Daniel, uh, probably not fit for this podcast, but it's, uh, what about when Daniel's on next week? I'll get him to mm-hmm. talk about Betty Snowball. Okay. So in the, the England win the first two tests. In the third test, Peggy takes six for 49 at the MCG or at a ground in Melbourne. I'm not sure if it was at the MCG, actually, but um, it's a draw. She goes on in state cricket. She dominates in local cricket. Uh, Here's a report from 1936 in the Herald. A crowd of nearly 500, chiefly men, saw the Australian 11 player Peggy Antonio of the Raymond A grade team make her state record score of 142 not out against Clarendon at Albert Park. In five innings this year, Peggy has scored 380 runs at an average of 76. Her bowling average is (laughs) 4.9. Like, holy shit, you know, she's... she's Very Pat Day news there for you, Jeff. Yeah, and so she's dominating at every level that she's playing. Okay. And she's becoming kind of a celebrity. So here's an an article from 1936. The headline is, Peggy Antonio Mystified. Who is the anonymous admirer who sends handsome gifts to the young international cricketer Peggy Antonio? For the past 12 months, beginning with the visit of the English team, Peggy has received many gifts, usually after a creditable performance on the field. Peggy is mystified, but she is also thrilled. These presents have included a manicure set, stockings, handkerchiefs, a scarf, and the last received on Saturday was a leather handbag in green, Peggy's favourite colour. Although each address has been neatly printed by the same hand, no package has contained the sender's name, but in the handbag was a printed card. I am sending you green, your lucky colour, and I wish you luck in Brisbane. This is the only clue Peggy has to her unknown admirer's identity or purpose. <laughs> this is in the newspapers. Like, there's, clearly there's not much going on it's in It's a lot Australia better than right jumping now. on Twitter and going, now I was sitting opposite a girl on the tube. Yeah. She was wearing this and, you know, this is at least a bit more purposeful. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, but what was it, misconnections in the yeah, yeah, or yeah. whatever it was? That's right, misconnections. If you were on the 436 to Frankston Yeah, if you're coffee, on the first, first bridge. <laughs> it was always coffee. Who wants to get coffee? Um, you up. Yeah, yeah. Late coffee. Late drink? Late coffee. Never had a late drink before, might not have a late drink again. So so a fellow called William Pollock, who writes for the Daily Express, gets quoted saying, she spins the ball astonishingly and gets a strong nip from the pitch. Whoever taught her to bat knows something. The way she used her feet and cracked the ball to the off nearly took my breath. She would make plenty of runs in English county cricket. <laughs> So, you know, she's... Uh, Isn't she- it funny, those tropes around... Well, I say tropes, those... Mm-hmm. Oh, well, if, if a woman's a good cricketer, maybe we should say whether they can play county cricket. Mm-hmm. Sophie Eccleston's still getting that yeah, constantly yeah. from those who don't pay enough attention to women's cricket, thinking that women would aspire to play in the county championship. Yeah, yeah. I mean, who could dream of anything better than turning out for Kent, you know, in there? Mm. So uh, here's, a, here's a piece, Adam, from the Barrier Minor newspaper of Broken Hill in 1936, I think. She has captured the popular imagination, Peggy Antonio, who at the youthful age of 18 ranks as the foremost all-round woman cricketer in Australia, has won this place by courage, patience and confidence in learning to execute every phase of batting and bowling. A remarkable feature of her bowling is the amount of spin she gets on the ball, considering her small hands and short fingers, and also the (laughs) fact that she is a woman. (laughs) The small fingers couldn't have helped. I was uh, having a conversation with someone the other day, uh, Steve Kinane, who's a, a friend of the show, and he said that um, his daughter once met, uh, he, as, a, as a young girl, once met Richie Benno, and mm-hmm. 
her only reflection was, he's got very long fingers, mm. <laughs> as you need to be to be a spinner. Yep. Very long fingers helps. Not the first to notice that old tip. <laughs> right, so 1937, they're going to England to play a test series and it seems that Peggy won't be able to go because she doesn't have the money to pay the fare on the ship, which is very expensive. But a businessman named James McLeod, maybe he was sending the green handbags, I don't know, supplies the money. And it turns out that he was the guy who used to employ her dad. So he speaks to the newspaper and says, uh, he said today that he had followed Peggy's exploits on the cricket field with some interest and it was the memory of her father that had impelled him to make his offer. Uh, for a moment there, I thought you were going to go the, the, old, the old crazy Ron Bashir route with Chappelle Corby. No. Going to fund the, fund the trip over there because of getting, like the legal defence. Getting her to take some, uh, take some stock with her. No, no, it wasn't like that. It was, um, so he'd... he'd he said that he remembered her father with fondness and with friendship and respect. And so, this is bearing in mind this is nearly 20 years later, he's decided to cough up the 75 quid, which is a lot of money in those days, okay. for the ship fare, to get her to England so she can play in the, in the test series. So, it's a, it's a really nice story, right? So, she gets to England, she turns 20, she makes 53 against Kent in the first match. She's opening or batting first drop. So, she's their best bowler and their best batter at this point. Against Yorkshire, she's on 98, they're nine wickets down and her batting partner gets run out trying to come back for a second and Aww. she's 99, not out. And then she's like, well, fuck it, follows up in the next game and makes 103 against Lancashire. Like, whatever, I'll just get a ton next time around. Makes 96 in a draw with Middlesex. And the, the real important moment and the one that relates to the number is they go to Northampton for the first test. First innings, she takes six for 51. All up in the match, she gets nine for 91. Sets up Australia's first ever win in women's test cricket. You know, big, big stuff for, mm, for, mm. for a 20-year-old to be doing this. They end up drawing the series 1-1. And so Frankie wanted to know about nicknames, right? There's a nickname that goes around in the papers, of course, which is the girl Grimmett because Clary Grimmett bowls leg spin and so does she, right? But her other nickname is the smiling assassin, because apparently she's just really nice and everybody likes her except they keep getting out to her. So there's the um, previous England captain, Betty Archdale, uh, is quoted saying, It will be grand to meet Peggy again off the field, but I am not so anxious to meet her on. Small, dark, bright-eyed, red-cheeked and with a large grin, Peggy is an excellent all-round cricketer. Her bowling should be more than unpleasant in our conditions, and she is not the kind of bowler to be worried by being hit and lose her length. There is a grinning determination about Peggy that makes her a very good member of any team. So that's why she's the smiling assassin, Frankie. So, you know, she's um, she gets talked up in the paper when she comes back in 1937. They have a ball to welcome her home in Port Melbourne, where she grew up. I thought it was going to end up being that Peggy was the nickname. Oh, no. That, that's where I, because you, know, you know how like Peggy yeah, yeah. often gets used. Not so much these. I think Peggy's these days. Tended, Elizabeth, isn't it? Yeah. Maybe. Please, someone not in the comment in the in the chat window. Is it Elizabeth gets shortened to Margaret. Peggy? Margaret. Margaret. Sorry, Margaret. Margaret my gets apologies. shortened to Peggy. I don't know why, but on her birth certificate, she's Peggy. She's not Margaret. So she also gets a sledge in against the English when she gets back. There's a headline that says Peggy Antonio says the quality of women's cricket is better in Australia. Um, <laughs> But then she says... It's uh, a shame that series, by the way, because 36, 37, uh, 1937, right? That's the Ashes, right? 37, yeah. That was the first women's series ever made for radio on the BBC mm. and not a single ball of it remains in the oh. archive. So there's bits and bobs from Howard Marshall from 34 right. with the Verity game. But unfortunately, none of it survived various moves from the BBC. We looked long and hard during calling the shots. Nothing Imagine around. if you could get Peggy Antonio 6 for 51. I know. That would be something. I mean, for about... You know, a very small select group of people like you and me that would make our make our year. Mm. 
that no, would make no my life. So she, um, she's, she's quoted in this article saying, we could take a lesson from England in cricket uniform. I do think girls look better in white hats and white stockings. This article ends up by saying, Peggy looks fit. Like the rest of the team, she has increased in weight. <laughs> <laughs> The newspaper coverage of the... I know, yeah, it's both funny and not funny. But um, anyway, so she ends up captaining a club after this. By February 1939, she's captaining Victoria. And by the next December, she's like, fuck it, I'm done. She's 22, pulls the pin. She's, she's, I suppose there wouldn't have been much women's cricket through the war. It might have been the reason for that, well, possibly. It, so the, the war's just started and yeah. it hasn't disrupted anything yet. But by this point, she's played nine seasons of club cricket. She started when she was 13. And she just she there's a quote from her saying, I have had too much cricket and will be better away from it for a while. She says she's fed up with it. So she has been playing for nearly a decade, you know, since she was a kid. And she's like, I, I could be doing other things with my weekends, you know. Yeah. Um, that, that existential sort of grade cricket crisis, I suppose. But, and, you know, she's not making any money from it. She's having to pay money to go and tour places and all of the rest of it. And, and in any case, cricket drops away, as you say, because World War Two unfolds from there so she wouldn't have been playing anyway um 1943 she marries an english guy called ed howard she starts having kids if you want to get a sense of the clan here's the death notice from uh 2002 i think mother of karen carl adrian and rena grandmother of caitlin christian javanta corinna Otis, Tamara, Renee, Jolin, Kai, Alira, Matreya, and Miranda. Great grandmother of Bud, Amber, Gemma, and Rory. Um, so Those she- names wouldn't be out of place in a primary school uh, class now. No, the sort of they are some quite yeah. oldie worldy names that have come back into fashion. I mean, I'm tipping at a lot of Otis's in, in great yeah. prep and. Uh, and maybe um, a there Christian are, with a K occasionally. Rena. There are a lot of Otis's in sort of Brunswick and North Kirk. Yeah, that's kind of more what I'm yeah, saying. It's, yeah. it's, uh, Arlo's and Otis's. It says uh, me with a winner for it, of course. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, of course. I can't really be. <laughs> <laughs> no Milo's, lots of Otis's. Funny that. Uh, also, Matreya is the name of a Psytrance festival in Australia. So, you know. You've got here Josh saying his son's middle name. I, I assume he's saying his son's middle name is Otis uh, in the comments here. <laughs> also one from Vivek noting that um, the Smiling Assassin was also, of course, Morelli's nickname. Yeah. It's nice. Very uh, good. Very given, good. Given what they both did. Yep. And Lauren says, on her birth certificate. <laughs> um, very good. So, look, she lived a long life until January 2002. Lived most of her time in Bandura in ah. suburban Melbourne. Um, and in keeping with her restrained personality, she requested to have no funeral. She's yeah. like, don't bother. I'm good. I've done my time. Like when she retired from cricket, just done. Except there's one last codicil to this very long story, and I'm sorry this has taken so long, but it was so good I couldn't help it. After retirement, she comes back for one game in 1949. A long time later. The English are touring, so she'd be in her early 30s at this point. Yep. She's had several of the kids by now. Her old captain, Margaret Peden, who Peggy loved and said that she was like a psychologist on the cricket field. She's running a team, a testimonial team against the touring English and she gets Peggy out of retirement for one last job. So what does Peggy do? Top scores with 47, takes two for 52 after 10 years out of the game. And the headline for this, describing this game, says this. Peggy Antonio plays good cricket. (laughs) Fucking oath she does. Caroline Swan on the back of this has jumped and done an archive search herself and says that some non-cricket publications were fascinated with the Australian women, um, with Peggy described as a machinist of cardboard boxes and an accomplished golfer. Mm -hmm. 
<laughs> yep. Well, some some say a shoe factory, some say a box factory. So, you know, <laughs> Principal down Skinner during, during the box factory. This is uh, Millhouse's old man down the big, <laughs> the big deal down the box That's factory. Right. <laughs> I sleep in a race car bed. <laughs> I sleep in a big bed with my wife. <laughs> um, so that is officially my longest ever nerd pledge answer for oh. you, Frankie. Uh, but it, it, was, it was too good. I couldn't leave anything out. So there you go. Well done. I'm Glenn Maxwell. Make sure you listen to my favourite podcast, The Final Word. Uh, next up is Simon Trafford. Now, this a, is a double, a double header. header. Yeah, with Richard Bomb McNally. Du, 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 du. Seven double zero. So Old Trafford and the President together. At last. Mm-hmm. Simon had a clue. Originally, the clue was B-E-R-C. Yes. And he said it was initials. And fair to say I spent a fair bit of time. Well, well I replied to that message and said, are you insulting me? And he said, no, it's initials. <laughs> I was like, okay. Well, with, with the acronym. Burke. I, I, I went through the acronym. I, I would have loved it to have been in relation to the Buffalo Economic Renaissance Corporation, having spent a year of my life living in the suburbs, <laughs> suburbs of Buffalo 20 years ago. Wasn't that, though. The further steer that I was given on this was that B-E-R-C – despite me going through a lot of Nottinghamshire players and thinking, well, who the fuck is going to, you know, no one does. Burke. The answer is nobody does. Well, oh, no okay. one I could find. He goes, no, 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 it's a, it's a cryptic anagram, so we need to reorder oh. the initials. And if you reorder them in this way, C-E-B-R. Cerberus, the three-headed dog. Cerberus. Yeah. Uh, you find one, Clive Edward Butler-Rice. Uh. Now, Simon says he spent two days in uh, a dressing room with him. I'm not sure what that's all about. Maybe photographing him early in his career. He can tell us in the comments, I suppose, as we go through this answer. But Clive Rice, we did do a bit of a dive on him recently for Chris Byrne. So was, was Simon the one who, who got offered to subfield for the team at one point and then that's and it. knocked it back because he was too nervous? That's it. Uh, we, we can get... Because um, he didn't want to go out there and field with Derek Randall because he was, you know... Simon, can you while you're listening to this, you, you might want to just quickly tell us that story again. Oh, I think he has already. I did 12th Man... I did 12th Man Judy's Ego. Right. So I mentioned I did for Chris Byrne maybe two or three months ago tell a story about Clive Rice, which ended Mm -hmm. up being horribly incorrect. And we had about 40 different goes Mm -hmm. at the revisit Mm -hmm. before finally working out it was Mike Proctor, I'm pretty sure. Proctor. Uh, Yeah. Anyway. Hard to tell them apart. Uh, So as I said then, and I will do again quickly here, probably the unluckiest South African player in many ways not to play a test match due to the the span of his career. It kind of neatly fitted in with the time in which they were not permitted to play international cricket, and fair enough. Born in 1949, so he was 29, sorry, he was 21 when the door was shut on them. From Johannesburg, um, started playing in 1969 with Transvaal. Got the call up for the 71-72 tour of Australia, which never happened. By 1975, he needs to supplement his income playing for Transvaal, ends up at Trent Bridge, ends up at Knotts, as mm-hmm. James Pattinson would do some mm-hmm. uh, some quarter of a century later. Goes on to have the most remarkable career in county cricket. 37 centuries for Knotts, a further 85 scores above 50, an average of 44, 17,000 runs for the county. And he, by the way, just on the side, took 476 first-class wickets at 23. <laughs> he was thrice the county player of the year in 1977. Clive thrice. Clive thrice. 1977, 1979 and 1981. In 81, he captained Knotts to their first county championship victory in 52 years, which I'm sure Simon will remember well. Uh, they won it again under his captaincy in 1987, right in the middle of the Richard Hadley era. Yeah. I was reading some Hadley stuff recently about 87 when he, I think it was 87, when he said he's going to do the double. He's going to 
uh, make a thousand runs and, and take a and take a hundred wickets. And the way that he he worked it out, he goes, "Well, I'll take I'll take I'll simply do this. I'll simply take sixty wickets at home mm-hmm. and forty wickets away." Sure. And so he did. Yeah. Just, you know the way Hadley would methodically work yep. things through, as we talked about with Coney a, a couple of weeks ago. Then I'm trying to work out what does the seven relate to. So I know it's Clive Rice, but the number seven zero zero. So where's the seven? Interesting that he never took a seven for. For all those wickets, his best figures in county cricket was six for 16. So no seven for there to go with. I thought maybe, did he make a thousand runs in a season seven times? Nope, 13 times. Every single season from 1975, he made a thousand runs or more for knots. Rude. And um, he never did the double. I thought maybe he did the double seven times, but surprisingly, again, uh, he never made it to 100 wickets in a season four times passing mm. 50. So it doesn't he really... He didn't plan it out. He didn't think 60 home, 40 60 away. 40 away. Yeah. No, even though he was opening the bowling with Hadley, yeah. that might have been an impediment sure. when you think about it with Hadley with him for, I think, nine of those seasons, something like that. Right. But then I, with Simon's help, it, it didn't relate to Knotts despite being a Knotts great. Uh, it relates to the fact that he did actually have a brief career for South Africa. They returned to the international fold, when he's 42 years of age in 1991. He gets picked to play the first one-day international, the first three indeed, against India in India. And when he turned up at Eden Gardens for the first of those, he was the seventh one-day international player for South Africa because they didn't play any uh, before they were booted out. He played some games for Scotland between times. That I think you've told that story before, how Clive Rice went, or maybe I did. I've, so I talked about Raoul Dravid playing for Scotland. Okay, it must have been me then. He did go to Scotland for a time yeah. in the late 80s, but they didn't have one-day international status. So when he did return for three one-days, sadly, they just didn't think he was good to go for the test matches. So uh, he didn't get that chance and didn't play in the World Cup of, of 1992. But that was a, a rational decision at that age and kind of emphasised how poorly timed his career was uh, from an international perspective. But Notts legend and the seventh player uh, to play a one-day international for South Africa, Jeff Clive Rice. Bad fact, you know you've got that one right. And then uh, President Richard Bond McNally also with seven zero zero. I mean, I did think 700 test caps because I know England went past it recently. That was Sam Billings. But um, but the President's number came up the list because it's a double header. So this came in mm. fairly recently in June, early June. So that would have been like six months after Sam Billings, a bit late, I would have thought, maybe. And also a bit late to be, you know, a Shane Warne tribute might have been thinking of the 700th wicket at the MCG and Andrew yep. Strauss and all that stuff. But that would have probably come in in March or April. So I thought maybe it's this, right? And because Richard Bond McNally is running for president and has a lot of connections, I thought, all right, obviously Owen Morgan, selfless in his last couple of matches, uh, making sure he got a first ball duck so that he didn't get in the way of England making the world record score of 498, etc. Um, choosing to pull the pin after the, the Netherlands games. Maybe the president knew that the writing was on the wall in early June because, you know, that was a couple of weeks later that Owen Morgan decides that that's it. Maybe it's sort of that at a time when England hadn't started playing tests again yet and Ben Stokes had been announced as captain but people weren't sure about it and maybe the president wanted to to agitate for the Mike Brearley solution, you know, get Owen Morgan in as <laughs> non-batting test captain to take over that side. Tell you what, might not have been a word, bad shout. Right. <laughs> well, not so much the test team but, but Morgan staying on in kind of a Brearley-esque role in the one-day team in the yep. T20 side. Yep. And so I thought maybe there's a Morgan link because, and we've talked about this before, his, uh, the test career he had between 2010 and 2012, 16 matches, two centuries, yes, yes, yes. But after all that was said and done, his test career finishes up, Owen Morgan, with exactly 700 runs. Ah, very good.
Is that something to do with your number, Richard Bond McNally? Thank let you. Let us know. Do let us know. Uh, some fact-checking in real time here. This is good, having the chat page open. Okay. Maybe we should do um, story time with the Zoom audience more often. Firstly, for those who've had to go to their meetings starting at 1pm, no worries at all. Thank you to uh, Joe and a couple of others who've, who've allocated an hour in their diary, uh-huh. but not the second. First of all, uh, we, we had a fair few messages about Millhouse's old man, um, Kirk, who's a big shot in the cracker factory, not uh-huh. the box factory. Oh, okay. That's from, um, from Maisie. Uh, and uh, there was some other um, messages in relation to Millhouse there. Deb, who is very good at correcting our errors, uh, reminds me that Richard Hadley didn't take uh, 100 wickets in 1987. He did so in 1984. Oh, if anyone's going to know that off the top of his head, yeah. it's going to be Deb, mm-hmm. um, who we caught up with last week at the pub. And, yes, Matthew Jones is saying, he, uh, affirmative, more story time live recordings, please. We'll see what we can do. See what we can do. Right. What do we got next? We've got Tim Vanderpump, hey. party liaison. Here he is. Um, yep. Do a handstand on the kegs, everybody. Get ready. Dance it, on the bar. It's in euros because he's a fancy man, Tim Vanderpump. Euro, yeah, it's because he just he loves it. Euro trash. Loves the euro. Loves loves Eurail. Loves loves going from say <laughs> Croatia to uh, Slovenia by train. Loves going from uh, Dresden to mm-hmm. Prague. Loves playing Paul Kelly's every fucking city. Every fucking city. <laughs> as he goes from place to place, <laughs> hop, hopping on a Contiki tour without a ticket. <laughs> And just becoming the life of the party so that they can't throw him off. He can order sandwiches in seven different languages. <laughs> <laughs> that is so niche, I don't even know where to start. Anyway, I don't know. 541. Five euros and 41 euro cents. Uh, what have you got for 541? Right, so Tim, uh, even though it's in euros, I know he's an Englishman. Because mm-hmm. we've done this before. We've gone through this before. When Tim's pledged in euros, we've gone one way, thinking yep. it might be a Dutch or a... Yeah, an Irish thing, no. um, but it's not. It's been an English thing. So I'll, I'll mark a spot for that. That I did look at Irish Dutch stuff again, but there's really no five four ones of note. Mm-hmm. So let's not let's not go any further down that path. It's never been taken in international cricket for either of those countries. For mm-hmm. example, his last pledge was Andy Flintoff's best international year when he made one thousand one hundred and fifteen runs. We also did a Clem Hill story for two one three final word number mm-hmm. for uh, Tim some time ago. So a wider net. Boom boom, Shahid Afridi. Okay. Uh, took 541 international wickets across the formats. One for each retirement. One for each retirement. So many of those were with the faster ball earlier in his career. Now, for those listening to this Storytime 100 on the podcast feed, I've probably already told this story in one form or another when we do the Woodstock bit on the weekly show. So contort your mind here that um, mm-hmm. we are doing these out of order this week. But I bowled pretty well at Wormsley on Friday. My life um, reimagined as an off spinner has, okay. has started nicely. Knocked over the captain. Yeah. Middle stump out of the ground. Okay. Uh, must, I must have been you've watering. Gone, you've gone to off spin from leg spin. I've decided to change it you've up. You've gone seam up to leg spin to off spin. Basically, my shoulder's working. Yeah. And I've detected that I might have a actual, you know, better time of it being able to control off breaks rather than rip leg breaks. Left arm orthodox. Should get onto that. That's next. Yeah. That's next. Anyway, and uh, the reason I thought of Shahid Afridi at the top of my mark, I thought I'm going to do what Shahid Afridi did and try and bowl a faster ball from the same action mm-hmm. and it was off the pitch for four buys. The one delivery that didn't go well. Anyway, <laughs> certainly when he arrived as an 18-year-old, 16, 17, 18-year-old, it was like twice and over. You'd see mm-hmm. a ball off his leg break run up at 132 kilometres an hour or something like that in the early days of the speed gun. So five four one for him. Now, again, as I sort of said with Pato, I, I was really wanting to do the dusty old bastard thing this week, but I don't quite think it's right for someone mm-hmm. who played test cricket mm-hmm. in 1989. That was John Stevenson, currently the chief executive at Essex, Jeff, where we were in each of the last two weeks at Chelmsford with 
uh, Laura Woolvart and of course Graham Gooch last week. We, so we feel like we're kind of locals there at the moment. Mm-hmm. We feel the closeness to that ground at Chelmsford. We've been there so many times across the journey, including the time that you climbed on the roof of the um, of the confectionery stall to, to pull the ball out of there when Mitchell Marsh hit one of many sixes in that tour game back in 2015. So John Stevenson was cap 5-4-1 for England, but mm-hmm. he's probably more known by the number 29 for he was the 29th English cricketer picked for the 89 Ashes to open with Gooch at the Oval. <laughs> so I think that's after Gooch dropped himself and brought himself back uh, for the final right. test of that, of that series that we went through with him last week. But it didn't work out. Stevenson never played for England again. He did make 15,000 first-class runs, though, so so fair play to him. Okay. Let's go a little bit further afield. I don't think we've ever featured a blind cricket story on this program. Mm-hmm. I mean, we, we might have tangentially, time. but not Daniel, properly. Daniel, Daniel and I talked about Stefan Nero's innings on the weekly show a few months ago when it happened. Yeah, um, so I'm going to go there again, only briefly, just mm-hmm. to simply say that we should, like what better time than Storytime 100 to briefly tell Yarn about um, blind cricket, given its increased presence since it's come under the banner of Cricket Australia, maybe mm-hmm. in the last four or five seasons, indoor cricket, and disability cricket, mm-hmm. blind cricket. That's all kind of now under the CA banner. And you mentioned Stefan Nero hitting 309 from 140 balls that obliterated the world record of 268. Declared in tribute to Bradman on yeah, 309. Yeah, that's right. Sure. Yeah, yeah. Uh, uh, the world record was 268, which was Ben Stokes, 268. Uh, I think that was his score. Anyway, Masood Jan made that for Pakistan back in the World Cup in, in 1998. It was Stefan Nero's third century of the competition. He was averaging 523 at the time, including the first six of the comp. And when you consider the way that blind cricket works with effectively rolling the ball along the ground, that's some effort. And he mm. did it with a reverse sweep. Mm-hmm. So that must take some real strength and timing to clear the ropes. And sure enough, Australia went on to break the innings record on that day as well. They made 541, our number, for two in their 40 overs. So, yeah, and a bit more information on the blind team. They've been in operation since 1998. That World Cup's the first time they they came together as a a full squad. They made the semis in 98, the semis in 2002. Haven't made it out of the group stage since, be it in 40 over or 20 over cricket. The most recent World Cup was a 20 over World Cup in 2017 where India won their second trophy over Pakistan. But I'm interested by the fact that there isn't an awful lot in the usual places where we do our research on blind cricket. Keen Mm. to learn more, so marking a place here that we will do more of that, both on Storytime and we'll try and keep an eye on it uh, on the the weekly show as well because there'll be tournaments that come up. And, Mm -hmm. yeah, it gets better coverage now from CA, so we should should reflect that in our coverage too. Yeah, and better better funding and um, the way that they pulled together a few of the different strands of uh, disability cricket in that tournament earlier in the year worked really well. So that's our double header. KB is up next. Probably not Kevin Bartlett, but it could be. Hope it is. No, but it's KB. KB's. I think Rhett, Rhett listens to the show. He's, he's his son. So um, if, if, if you are listening to this, get KB to listen to this answer at some point. Yep, yep. No, this is, our, this is our KB who's had a few numbers on the show before. Doesn't sort of drop the ball when getting tackled and have no. the holding the ball rule changed because of him. No. Handballs as well. Wouldn't do it. Wouldn't do it. Just wouldn't do it. I love um, the fact that he loved the goal though, Bartlett. <laughs> I, I like the fact that he didn't handball. No. Knew where the, he just just hungry, wasn't he? As, as it was, just wanted goals. Even well, you don't play four hundred games if you're not hungry. <laughs> Three fifty-two is KB's number. With the brief clue, I'm keen to mend bridges with the funniest man in cricket. Uh, he later followed up with a message to say sources indicate he may instead be the second funniest. Right. Who's the funniest man in cricket? This is where I started. Is it Steve Smith who was brought into the Ashes team in 2010 as a comedian <laughs> to tell jokes in a dressing room? Gosh, how that's played out. I know. I to, know. to come into the side as the funny bloke. Yeah. To be, well, let's not be mean, but 
to be what he is these days. Uh-huh. He, yeah. It's been a, it's been an interesting journey. It's more physical comedy these days yes. than, um, than than cracking gags about you know, whatever it is in the dressing room. No, probably not Steve Smith. Is it Greg Ritchie, the most racist comedian in cricket? Probably not. He's the funniest man in cricket, Billy Birmingham. He'd have a claim to it, uh, but I didn't think that necessarily fitted. I looked at Cap 352. I don't think 1950s Surrey keeper Arthur McIntyre It was particularly funny, or Paul Rifle, not really known for no, being a jokester. Paul Rifle, you hey. barely get a word out of him. Pistol? Oh, oh, funny bloke. Maybe he is behind closed doors. Who knows? Um, right. But then I thought, hang on, let's be lateral about this. Who loves funny cricketers? Dan Liebke. Dan Liebke loves funny cricketers. You may know his writings on the internet. He used to work with us on White Line Wireless. He ended up writing two entire books, one of them about the funniest 50 matches and one of them about the funniest 50 players. And that all started when he had a website and he wrote a like a blog post thing that was the 40 funniest cricketers in the history of cricket. So this rang a bell and I thought I'd go and have a look. I mean, Dan invented the term Maxwell ball, mm. which, which predates Baz ball, so I think he could take credit for that as well. Um, his list of the funniest cricketers in history includes Gary Pratt. It includes Vinu Mancad, which is great to see, Rob Quiney, Shahid Afridi, who you just mentioned, Douglas Jardine. At number two on the list, he had Stuart Broad. And he says about Stuart Broad, highbrow satire, unsophisticated prop work, the lost art of mime, Stuart Broad has proven himself to be a genuine all-rounder indeed. And then at number one on the list, he put Shane Robert Watson. He said Watson had grown up in one of the grimmest periods of cricket in history, forced to watch as Steve Waugh's team stone-facedly crushed everybody who dared oppose them. That kind of humourless reign of terror would never happen again. Goes through all of the stuff about Shane Watson and the DRS and the front pad, saying the LBW review decision upheld routine was a one-two-three punch that never grew tired, like Sideshow Bob stepping on a rake. It somehow grew funnier each time. And he goes on to say that, you know, there are lots of other things about Watto, the different modes of dismissal, the body language, the talking to himself, what he did when he was bowling, what he did when he was fielding, and uh, goes on to say, needless to say, Watson's captaincy was as funny as the rest of his game. But Dan finishes with this. He says... Shane Watson was due to be named as the funniest cricketer of all time, but sadly there was a review that predictably went against him. (laughs) He therefore shares the spot of second funniest cricketer of all time with Broad, opening up one last spot for the actual funniest cricketer of all time, after which Dan published number one, which was Stuart Broad again, because he said Stuart Broad is so funny that he has to be number two and number one. So... All of that ended up going against Shane Watson, who was the funniest, but then on reflection became the second funniest. And uh, what was the number for KB? 352. What was Shane Watson's test batting average? 35.19. Rounded up in final word style. Bang. Perfect. At the fact that we get Dan Liebke into Storytime 100 mm-hmm. as well makes me very happy. Mm-hmm. Thank you very much, KB. Hungry for goals, hungry for numbers, hungry for cricket. <laughs> Pushka Gobbole is... You should probably call advanced hair. Yeah, well, speaking of advanced hair, uh, I see once I mentioned my um, my move from bowling seam up to bowling mm-hmm. off breaks and um, a few people have said I could go the funky route here. Oh, yeah. um, Jack says, Adam, funky Miller Collins. Matthew Jones wants me to dye my hair blue. Andrew Pellachati, who joined us last week, says, fast offies or slow and flighty? The former, off the index finger, Andrew, uh-huh. believe me. Um, there wasn't much flight going on. Advanced hair, blue brigade, says Simon Trafford. Advanced hair, blue hair, oh, yeah, yeah, no, Alex Brown. So, um, Right, everybody's into it. Uh, look, I don't want to rule it out. Okay. Wouldn't put a line through it. No? Yeah, that might be a way we can take the friendship to the next mm. level with advanced hair if I dye my hair blue. Yeah. Watch this space. 
Why is your hair blue, Nan? Oh, it's always been blue. <laughs> right, where are we? We've got... Uh, Pushkar Godbele is yes. where we are. Clue from him. Uh, it is The number is $2.14 in USD, and the clue... All I will say for now is that this is rounded up. Yeah, yeah, okay. So we've had rounding just then. We're going to have rounding again here. I am going to talk about Michael Holding, but not for the usual reasons. We talked oh. about his 14 wickets in a test match back in 1976. Yeah, we often get quite excited about his test career, but we seldom talk about his outstanding one-day career. Mm-hmm. Now, only Joel Garner and Mike Hendrick have lower bowling averages in, in one-day cricket with superior economy rates. So, right. And Hendrick, it's a small sample size of 35. Garner, a bigger sample size, 146 wickets at 18.8 and an economy rate mm. of 3.09. But for holding, 136 wickets at 29.34, so rounded mm-hmm. up to 214 for the purposes of uh, our, uh, our conversation here, at an economy rate of 3.32. Now, he didn't quite get going in time for the 75 World Cup, but he did make his debut a year later on that aforementioned Tour of England in 1976. But his next one-day international, Jeff, is the World Cup of 79 because World Series mm. cricket intervenes. And you look through the numbers, that's clearly where that proved a bit of a finishing school for him in white ball cricket, where he honed his game, even though it wasn't quite white ball cricket, but limited overs cricket, that was the white ball. <laughs> Andrew McClelland on the decks, yeah. the finishing school for <laughs> Michael Holding at finishing school would be quite a sight. I've got to say, the two happiest nights of my life just about were, I say that, under advisement given now that I've got a child, but that was in the day uh, with my two nights DJing at finishing school all those years ago. <laughs> Maybe again this summer. I'll speak to Andy, see how we go. But, yeah, he, he took 20 wickets at 23 in World Series cricket. Mm-hmm. So, you know, by the time he returns in 79, he's really in his pomp. Uh, and in that World Cup, he's outstanding. Uh, four for 33 against India, one for 29 against New Zealand, one for mm-hmm. 28 against Pakistan, mm-hmm. and then two for 16 against England in the final from eight overs. Now, these days, I reckon if you take two for 16 from eight, in a winning World Cup team and you knock over both of the openers as he did, remembering that England got off to a, a slow but steady start. They were 129 for none when mm-hmm. they took tea. I think that's how the story goes. Back in those days, they would still have lunch and tea in and around the, the 55 overs <laughs> they were playing. Um, but, you know, they laid the foundation as was the way they set up one-day chases back in, in 1979. Mm-hmm. They come back from tea. Uh, and holding goes bang, bang, gets Brearley, then boycott in the space of a couple of overs. England lose 10 for 65 and mm-hmm. are all out, and West Indies comfortably uh, win their second World Cup, the second World Cup. And, yeah, holding two for 16 uh, from his eight overs was instrumental in bringing on that collapse and, and winning the trophy. Loads more one-day cricket thereafter. They're seemingly in Australia every summer through mm-hmm. that stretch of time, playing in the World Series Cup. Again, in the 83 final at Lords, he does his job. Two for 26 from 9.4. India are all out for 183, but of course um, uh, they're let down by their batters and uh, the Windies are are all out for 140 to give India uh, that landmark groundbreaking victory. He didn't quite make it to the 87 World Cup, though. Mm -hmm. He he bowed out of uh, one-day cricket in the January of that year in Australia. Interesting that he'd ultimately detest short-form cricket, certainly 20-over cricket. He'd go on to often say that it wasn't real cricket and he felt that T20 cricket was the trigger as to why the West Indies fell off the cliff that mm-hmm. they did about 10 years ago or so. And that's a reasonable position to hold, I think, if you look at the way that player exodus of sorts happened. It was T20 cricket that took them away from the forms that Mikey played, but he was superb at it. At list day level, 343 wickets at better than 21 in his long stint mostly with Derbyshire. And yes, 21.4 was his average in one-day cricket for the West Indies. The uh, lesser-known Michael Holding international career. I see. So you round up, you get 21.4. It works. It works. It works. Pushka.
I think it works. Send us a message. Let us know. Last number. Oh, my God. I can't believe we've actually come to the end of the listed numbers. And I'm feeling pretty confident about most of them. Not so much Lara, who immediately told us we were wrong, cruelly, devastatingly. But Dane Hanstead is our last number. It is in Australian dollary dues. It's $3.14. Uh, three dollar dues and fourteen dollar dues cents, <laughs> and um, Dane uh, hasn't sent a clue. But Dane is a Victoria freak. Dane loves a Victoria number, mm. especially loves a regional Victoria number. Loves an off-Broadway Victoria number. Mm-hmm. Now, as some people pointed out when I posted the numbers up this week, uh, three point one four is also pie. Yep. Uh, Dane works in a bakery. Very good. Could be pie related. I hope it's pie-related. I hope at some point we get to drive through regional Victoria and get the donuts and pies that we've been promised. Michael Abramson, the South African cricket commentator. Yes, who I worked with in, uh, yep. in the uh, 2018 series over there. I saw this video. Yep, yep. He also describes himself as a mentalist, um, which was also the name of that weird show with Simon Baker, who was on one of the Australian soapies. Anyway, uh, Michael Abramson did a trick where he memorised, not only memorised the first 2,000 decimal places of pi, he then set a Guinness world record for reciting them from memory fastest. And you know who was the, like, the exam? Is yes. Invigilator? Invigilator. Invigilator was Andrew Sampson. Andrew Sampson. <laughs> sitting in the room with him across the, across the kitchen table. Who was sitting there with a, a list of the 2,000 digits and a pencil just going along making sure that he read them all out correctly and ticking them off. So Michael Abramson can do the first 2,000 digits of pi in like, I don't know, it was like two minutes. It or got s- inside a Twitter video, so yeah. it probably was inside 220. Must have been 220. inside 220. Yeah. Extraordinary stuff. You can find that. So, okay. But uh, I was like, all right, I've got to get in the archives of Victorian cricket and find something really obscure to satisfy Dane. You know, I'm like, it could be a lot, a lot of things, but you were talking about shit 50 over totals. Well, let's, let's, let's take a slightly different view on that. Okay. All right. It is the summer of 69. Got my first real six string, you know, down at the five and dime. 6970, in fact, the Vehicle and General Australasian Knockout Competition takes place. I have never heard of this before I researched the answer to this clue. This was the first list A comp that got played in Australia domestically. Yes. So the English had started with a 65-over competition called the Gillette Cup in 1963. The Australians take a few more years and they go, okay, we're going to have a 40-over competition. And I thought, that feels very sort of 2003, you know, Cricket Australia 40-over comp, but it was an eight-ball 40-over competition. 48 Which I think this overs. is why the first one day was a 40-over game because they just used the format yeah. that, that had been you know, in place for a couple of years by that stage in yeah. Australia. So 320 deliveries, so not too far off the yep. the contemporary sort of method. Now, the first one-day international doesn't get played until 1971, so this is before that's yep. happened. And the Australian comp features all six states and New Zealand, but like a New Zealand, New Zealand as a domestic yep. team, right? And it's a straight knockout. So all of the six states play each other. Three of them get knocked out. But because there are only seven teams, New Zealand get a bye. They get a bye in a three-game <laughs> knockout series. They get a Can it be pass. more patronising? You know, they, they didn't send proper teams to New Zealand to play test cricket for such a long time, you know, uh, and, and here they're like, yeah, actually, we don't think you've got the skills to get to the final four without a bit of help. They gave them a bye into the semi-final directly, right? And... And not just this first year, but it repeated as well. So 
in this first year, right, Victoria beat Tasmania first up, Western Australia beat South Australia, New South Wales beat Queensland, New Zealand get the bye and they go into the semi-final against New South Wales who make a big 150 yeah. from their 320 balls. <laughs> and it's a pretty good New Zealand team. Glenn Turner's in that team. Yep. Bevan Congdon is in that team who Jeremy Coney spoke about uh, with great respect. Dale Hadley, Bob Cunis, neither one thing nor the <laughs> other. Um, and they knock off these runs. They chase them down, I think, six wickets down. So they're into the final at the MCG. And the MCG does not prove to be too big for this New Zealand team. They bowl out Victoria for 129. And Cunis, the aforementioned, bowls, clean bowls, three players in a row through the middle order. Uh, Big Bevan Congdon mates, 69. Nice. And uh, they chase it down. Uh, but, but his his 69 comes off 133 balls. So that gives you a, a sense of how exciting this match would have been to yeah, watch. Yeah. Come down to the MCG, watch Bevan Congdon make 69 off 133 in a limited overs game. So he gets out with the scores level. New Zealand win four wickets down. Uh, the next two seasons, they still get the bye, but they don't get past the semifinals. But then a couple of years later, oh, and, and Victoria knocked them out. They get revenge at one point. They've got a better team at that point. They've got Bill Laurie and Max Walker and Keith Stackpole and Ian Redpath. But New Zealand come back in 1972-73, I think. No, they win another one a couple of seasons later right. um, when it's become the Coca-Cola Australian knockout competition. And then they win it again in 74-75 when it's the Gillette Cup. And then they get punted out of the competition. Like, you won too many. You won three in six years. You're taking advantage. You've overstayed your welcome. Off you shoot. This is the second article I ever got paid money to write, was, yeah. was, was the arguing that New Zealand... This is going back to the summer of 13-14. Mm. I argued that New Zealand should have two teams in the Sheffield Shield. Mm. Not in a patronising way like that, but mm. in a, a rising tide lifts all boats kind mm-hmm. of thing. Where If you gave the New Zealand, like South Island, North Island, something mm-hmm. like that, admittance to the Sheffield Shield, you'd have more teams in the comp. Yep. Uh, which I think they should do anyway, by the way. I reckon they should expand the Shield to seven or eight teams with... Eight-team comp. An eight-team comp. If you have an eight-team comp, you can have a knockout where everyone plays. That, that as well. Instead of a buy to the semi-final. But for four-day cricket too. And yeah. I know that not everyone will agree with this, but if you played just a little bit more first-class cricket in Australia, you could do that by having eight teams. Mm. But if you had New Zealand involved, I think that's a, that, that could be good for both Australia and New Zealand. Well, I also wanted to note that at one point uh, when, when, when they lost to Victoria in that semi-final, New Zealand had a player called David Trist and a player called Graham Newdick. I like that. If you're going to have a Trist, <laughs> it's probably with a Newdick. Um, and Bevan Congdon was prominent in all three of those wins. So they won the thing three times. Then they got shuffled off by uh, whoever was running cricket in Australia. Stop winning our competitions. Piss off. And uh, the reason that I came to all of this... Dane. Oh, yeah. So the first, Where's the number? The number. The number was 314, remember? The first time that New Zealand won this competition, the proud triumph of the vehicle and general Australasian knockout competition, when they chased 130 in the first season, they did so from 31.4 overs. Dane. Very, very good. Uh, I was looking at another final at the MCG from 1988 recently, which I think Hypercost has done. Um, in fact, I know he has. He's made a, a catalogue of every women's game televised from way back when, like all of the TV highlights and where there are games in full, which I don't think there are many of. He's found a way to kind of put them all in one place as a, as a resource. And the 88 Women's World Cup final at the G sees England make like 110 from their 50 overs or something like that and Australia knock it off fairly convincingly but yes it could be a difficult ground to score quick runs at so I'm not surprised to hear that uh, it was tough going for um, when they did play there at the big MCG but 
uh, yes, I, I think that um, that is an interesting time in, in Australian white ball history. I, I've gone through that Wikipedia page before and been fascinated by the different comps they tried and tried. And they're still doing that, right? I mean, they, they've, they've never quite, except for the mercantile mutual era, mm. they've never absolutely nailed 50 over cricket domestically in Australia. They're always tweaking with something, always trying something new. Even recently about, is it a carnival? Does it matter where you play the games? Do we play it at the start of the year, the end of the year? Tacking it on the end of first class games, the pandemic, they, they tried a few things with that that last year. So mm. yes, a, a competition we have a lot of fondness for for the 90s, but hasn't really captured the imagination since. Yeah, yeah. I mean, you just got to be able to hit the sign. If you can't hit the sign, bring the signs back. Of money. Yeah, bring the signs back. <laughs> if Andy Flower can't make fifty grand by hitting the sign, then what are we all coming here for? So, so that, that's the end of our new numbers, which means that sort of technically, in normal terms, that has been story time one hundred. Yeah. But since we have a live audience who is who are sending us messages, I think we should find out if we've. So, what have we got right and what have we got wrong? I mean, Dane Hanstead definitely wrong. Pushkar Gobele, right? I'm confident. KB. So you think Pushkar, with the because yeah. of the rounding, will be correct? I think that's. Uh, okay. I think that's a good shout. I think KB's correct. Yes, I do too. Tim Vanderpump. I think Tim Vanderpump will not be correct. Not be correct because I don't think. I mean, I didn't mention this, but no. I, I suspect that Tim's clue came in before the 541 was made by the probably. Australian blind team. Yep. Uh, I think President Richard Bond McNally is probably not correct. Simon Trafford is. Is. Helen Maynard Casely is. Uh, Tanya Winteringham. 20% chance it's correct. 20% chance. There, there were some other ideas sent through that are closer yep. final word areas, which I'll go through the notes later and, yep. and start preparing the revisits, but that's as good as I can come up with on yep. the train up to Birmingham this morning. Crispy nailed on. I will leap from the top tier of this grandstand yes. if that's not correct. And Lara Killick, not correct. So does anyone in the comments have any answers in terms of, like, do you have a better answer than we've come up with? Uh, not that Tim Minchin says we nailed the Adam Dale catch. Number that was last revisits. year, last last week, rather, good, wasn't it? Good to know. We've got a few ideas here about how Crispy New Crispy confirms, Zealand. correct. Got that. Oh, good. Tick. Thank you, Crispy. Yeah, Richard Jans Moore says we need 18 teams in the Sheffield Shield, ideally. Yeah, yeah. I mean, <laughs> when you've got anything less than 18, it loses credibility. Uh, Vivek saying uh, a trans-Tasman Sheffield Shield. Um, Alex Brown, maybe the World Test Champions could give Australia a place in the Plunkett Shield. Mm-hmm. <laughs> That's quite a fair point, Alex. But when I wrote that piece, it was probably more to do with the fact that the six um, Plunkett Shield sides are... Uh, uh, they don't have professional... I think I'm right in saying they don't have 12-month professional contracts a lot right. of domestic players, mm. whereas it might be a, a chance to concentrate some of the talent and get them playing in the Shield. So it wasn't about the, the quality of the national team or about um, the, the the scope of the domestic comp. Yep, yep. Maybe Liam Plunkett should play in the Plunkett Shield. Maybe yeah. that would help. Okay, here's Lara's thing from earlier. Here's an additional clue. It is the intersection of the Venn diagram between me, the king of pop... And cricket. Okay, let's try and work this out together. So often the way we get to numbers that we neither have not, not, no clue of, we, we quickly discuss it and that mm-hmm. tends to drink, take us over. So King of Pop, Michael Jackson. King of Pop has to be Michael Jackson. Are there any, can you, in the chat, throw it in if there are any other nominations for the King of Pop, but surely it's MJ. Okay, looking for a, a, a nod or a shake of the head. Are, are you referring to Michael Jackson there? Yes, thumbs up. Okay. Okay. How would Lara intersect with Michael Jackson? Uh-huh. Could it be to do with proximity? I mean, we're talking America, aren't we? Yeah, California. Could, is it Neverland something to do with American Ranch. cricket? No, not Amer- nothing to do with American Did you cricket. ever visit Neverland Ranch, Lara? <laughs> okay, lucky. It's not to do with the great Bart. What's his name? Bart, uh, the, fil- the, the gentleman of Philadelphia. Oh, Bart King. Bart King. No, no. No. Not King Bart. Hmm. 
We're going to have to take it on notice. Is it, is it a birthday? Does it overlap? Is your birthday Michael Jackson's Ooh, birthday? We, we've got a... Uh, ha, 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 ha. We should take Lara off mute here. There we go. Good morning, guys. Okay, so do you share a birthday with Michael Jackson? Is that what's happening? I do, yes. Ah, okay. Someone else who plays cricket shares that birthday? No, not somebody else who plays cricket. Okay. So it is a fascinating day in cricket history. Okay. But it's also connected to the Oval. So I had to bring in the Oval connection. I just put in my default options to put the person's name and then Crick Info afterwards just to search them. No, it's Michael Jackson Wiki, not Michael Jackson Crick Info. He doesn't have one yeah, of them. no. <laughs> For all that he has, he doesn't have a Crick Info page. So the 29th of August, 1958 is Jackson's birthday. Let's focus on 29 August. So England summer, Oval. It'll be the final test of a summer. So when did something substantial happen in the final test of a summer at the Oval? Were you there, Lara? Uh, uh, no. I'm not that old, and neither would Michael Jackson. So it's an old one. This is back in the history. But it's not. It's not 1958. Is it 1958? No. So did someone take eight for 29 at the oval? Well, we know they didn't because we've already talked no. about the two test eight, eight two nines, nine. and it's not. And as it happens, someone's that someone's got it in the chat. Someone has it in the chat. Oh, is this a Matt May special? Has he done it again? Not that Tim Minchin has got it. And oh, I see. Okay, Michael Jackson died on not Tim Minchin's birthday. It would seem he actually okay. died on the um, the last day of the Ute Gate scandal, which is my favourite week ever yeah. when Malcolm Turnbull embarrassed himself and effectively ended his leadership. Something else died on this day. The oh, the Ashes. Australia, 1882. 1882. Uh, Michael Holden. 1882. Yeah. So the Ashes happened on Michael Jackson's birth, on what would become Michael Jackson's birth. Well, yeah, I mean, that's not that unusual, is it? One in one in 365 chance of that. It's not, okay. you know, I can, I can, I'm not going to say that's a rarity, it's an oddity. Well, more, more to the point, Michael Jackson was born on the day that the ashes were created. Yeah, um, that, that's true. But um, where would the, ne- therefore, the number 829, is it the collapse of 8 for 29? Is it, um, is no, it? you have to remember, so you have to remember the ridiculousness of the way that Americans do dates. Oh, oh 29th of August. No matter how many times we've got date ones of these, we still get stumped by date ones of these. We're still like, oh, shit. You can, it doesn't have to be, you know, someone's fucking batting average in the fourth innings. It might just be a, a day of a month. So on, oh, okay. So on the 29th of August, Fred Spofforth bowls out England because WG Grace was a cunt. Uh, and got him really mad, and then English cricket died. That makes the final cut. It'll be the first time anyone said cunt on this show. Will it? Mm. Okay. Oh, well, there we go. Well, we are an Australian show, so <laughs> we've, we've got to stay true to our roots. Um, yeah, and then, then, then English cricket died, apparently. Then the obituary was in the paper, and then another 70-odd years later, Michael Jackson is born on that day to commemorate the ashes. And I suppose when <laughs> Michael Jackson died, he also commemorated the ashes. Yeah. Okay. Well, we got it. Dono's laughing. I can see on the screen here. Hello, Dono. See, Guy Hornsby, who's uh, walking, what did he say here? He's walking between, where are we? I'm stood in a motorway halfway to London. (laughs) Hey, Guy. Okay. Guy, that's not how you get, get, if you're in the motorway, get in a car. You don't walk on the motorway to London, (laughs) Guy. It'll take you a very long time. Well, we've solved your answer, Lara. Thank you for being first cab off the rank this week and uh, for helping us solve it live. This has been... The final word story time, 100. Three. Hey! Uh, Raise your Woodstock bats. Yes, yes. Everybody on mute is cheering, I'm sure. <laughs> My friends are all just out of shot. Having, <laughs> they're laughing too. Um, we have done 100 story times, which means I don't quite know where the numbers are up to, but I think it's like maybe a 
thousand or getting close to a thousand numbers solved. I don't know. Wow. It's it's a, it's it's a lot. It's a lot. It might be past a thousand given how many we did early on. Nonetheless, we're going to keep doing it because this is where we get to do things like learn the life story of. Peggy Antonio. It's worth it. And uh, what happened in the vehicle in general, Australasia knockout cup and all of these things that we didn't know and that Put it maybe this way. you didn't know. Put it this way, Peggy. Let's hope we have a girl in January. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Oh. <laughs> you might get that one passed, actually. Don't, yeah, don't, just don't let on that there's a cricket connection. I'm not going to tell always, Rach that. That's always it's like the... when for about five minutes I said with the first time around, I'm like, if we have a boy, maybe Dermot. And then she's yeah. like, she didn't really want to go down that path, but she certainly didn't know anything about Dermy. Uh-huh. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. And, and Clem for Clem Hill didn't. Didn't get over the line. No, because the Clem was um, Clem Attlee, then Clem yeah. Hill, and she's on both counts. She's like, no, and Clem what's Jones, wrong with you? The, the Lord yeah, Mayor yeah. of Brisbane <laughs> slash groundskeeper. <laughs> groundskeeper at Clem. I have to take off my mayoral chain because I have to go and roll the pitch. Mm. Right, this has been story time. It's a hell of a lot of fun. If you want to be on the show and you haven't been on the show or if you want to be on the show and you have been on the show, you send us a number. You do that by going to patron.com slash the final word. Patron is spelt P-A-T-R-E-O-N for reasons best known to Americans. You go there, you sign up, you put the number in, it gets sent to us, we put it in the magic spreadsheet, and then it comes around on the show in due course. It is as simple as it could be. And uh, you can help us keep making the show, and you can be on the show and be part of the ridiculum that is story time. It's on the Bad Producer Podcast Network. It's edited by Dave Collins. It's hosted by Adam Collins, No Relation, and me, Jeff Lemon. And uh, I don't think there is really anything else to say. Congratulations on getting to 100 shows. Congratulations, you as well. Thanks to everybody for making it possible. As we said at the top, we could never have believed this would have worked, um, let alone work so well. And if you haven't joined up yet, um, please be part of the next 100 shows because I see no reason why we won't keep doing this year after year. A lot of work, but it's all worth it. We love it. We love you all. Minute after minute, hour after hour. We'll see you for 101. Have a nice weekend. I had to go about it.